morning. So glad you're here this morning. We're, glad, we're grateful that you're here. We're grateful that you're watching live stream. Uh, for just a couple minutes, though, I want us to sit back and relax. And I'm going to pray that we allow the Spirit of God to open the eyes of our understanding and to open our ears so that we can hear his truth as we do this video clip. It's the full story of life crushed into four minutes. The entirety of humanity in the palm of your hand crushed into one sentence. Listen, it's intense, right? God, our sins, paying everyone life. The greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told, God. Yes, God, the maker and giver of life. And by life, I mean any and all manner and substance, seen and unseen, what can and can be touched, thoughts, image, emotions, love, atoms, and oceans, God. All of it is handiwork, one of which is masterpiece, made so uniquely that angels look curiously. The one thing in creation that was made with his imagery, the concept so cold, it's the reason I stay bold, how God breathed in a man and he became a living soul. Formed with the intent of being infinitely, intimately fond, creator and creation held an eternal bond. And it was placed in perfect paradise till something went wrong. A species got deceived and started lusting for his job. An odd list of complaints as if the system ain't working and used that same breath he graciously gave us to curse him. And that sin seed spread through our soul's genome. And by nature of your nature, your species, you participated in the mutiny, our, yes, our sins. It's nature inherited, black in the human heart. It was over before it started. Deceived from day one and led away by our own lust. There's not a religion in the world that doesn't agree that something's wrong with us. The question is, what is it? And how do we fix it? Are we eternally separated from a God that may or may not have existed? But that's another subject. Let's keep grinding. Besides trying to prove God is like defending a lion, homie. It don't need your help. Just unlock the cage. Let's move on on how our debt can be paid. Short and sweet. The problem is sin. Yes, sin. It's a cancer. An asthma, choking out our life force, forcing separation from a perfect and holy God. And the only way to get back is to get back to perfection, but silly us. Trying to pass the course of life without referring to a syllabus. This is us. Keep up your good deeds. Chant, pray, meditate. But all of that, of course, is spraying cologne on a corpse. Or you could choose to ignore it as if something don't stink. It's like stepping in dog poop and refusing to wipe your shoe, but all of that ends with how good is good enough. Take your silly list of good deeds and line them up against perfection, good luck. That's life past your pay grade. The cost of your soul, you ain't got a big enough piggy bank, but you could give it a shot. But I suggest you throw away the list, cause even your good acts are an extension of your selfishness. But here's where it gets interesting. I hope you're closely listening. Please don't get it twisted. It's what makes our faith unique. Here's what God says is part A of the gospel. You can't fix yourself. Quit trying, it's impossible. Sin brings death. 
Give God his breath back. You owe him. Eternally separated. And the only way to fix it is someone die in your place. And that someone got to be perfect or the payment ain't permanent. So if and when you find a perfect person, get him or her to willingly trade their perfection for your sin and death in. Clearly, since the only one that can meet God's criteria is God, God sent himself as Jesus to pay the cost for us. His righteousness, his death, functions as payment. Yes, payment. Wrote a check with his life, but at the resurrection, we all cheered, because that means the check cleared. Pierced feet, pierced hands, blood-stained son of man, fullness, forgiveness, free passage into the promised land. That same breath that God breathed into us, God gave up to redeem us. And anyone and everyone, and by everyone, I mean everyone, who puts their faith and trust in Him, and Him alone can stand in full confidence of God's forgiveness. And here's what the promise is, that you are guaranteed full access to return to perfect unity by simply believing in Christ and Christ alone. You are receiving life. Yes, life. This is the gospel. God, our sins, paying everyone life. Ooh, big old honk and amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. so much. All right, let's try that again. We'll just pretend that didn't happen. Stronger is the world 
always he is worthy of our praise. Amen. Again, we're so grateful that you're here this morning. If you're watching live stream, love that you're here with us. I just want to take a moment to have everybody turn around for a second and do the distance COVID wave high five. Say hi to everybody this morning. If you haven't had a chance to get your communion, make sure you get that before communion time.
salvation comes my way And when I cannot stand, I'll follow you Jesus, you're my hope so much this morning. Isn't that true? We need him all the time. And I just want to take this time, this morning to acknowledge how everything that we have been given in this world, right? Everything that we see, everything that we have, everything we don't have is God's, right? He owns it all. We've been asked to be good stewards of what he's given us. And so with that this morning, um, we want to go look towards offering and acknowledge that while it's God's and there's nothing that we can give him that he does not already own, um, it's an opportunity for us in our lives to worship beyond our words, right? To show him that, yes, God, this is yours, and I'm going to put forth what you have given me for your eternal kingdom and know that he's going to take it and multiply it and do it, do works for um, that only he can do. So... We have three ways we can do that here at Southwoods. You can see that on the screen. And we're going to continue worshiping in song this morning.
by your power. By your power, the oceans open wide. Your fire falls down, heaven and earth collide. King Jesus, forever by my side. Yes, you are. just contemplating some thoughts this morning that I'm just going to share with you. And it's something that I'm con- regularly convicted about myself. In Revelation, it says that John was in the middle of a worship service and God broke into that worship service. He just kind of stopped it in its tracks. Have you ever been in the middle of a worship service? Uh, maybe earlier where I just all of a sudden really messed up and it just stopped in its tracks. But one that Not one like that, but one that God kind of stops in your tracks. You're in the middle of something, and all of a sudden, God just says something to your heart that just totally shatters you. I think there are times where our feelings really get in the way of worship. A lot of times we feel like we're not worshiping unless we have this certain feeling about what we're singing about or anything at that point, and that's not a biblical concept at all. Sometimes feelings don't actually enter into worship all that as much as we think we do. It does. Worship is when we realign ourselves with who God is and who we are. It's one of the most important things we can do is recalibrate our lives to the reality of who God is and the reality of who we are and what we need. And that's why we do communion here every Sunday. It's something that we can easily just pass by because it maybe doesn't give us this certain feeling. But the reality is, is if we don't realize why we're taking communion, then none of our worship here has any purpose. It is because of the blood of Christ 
because of the body that he gave us, that our whole worship is possible this morning. Are you thankful for that? Amen. So let me pray, and then we're going to give you guys a few moments to, and I just encourage you to just talk with God. You may not have this certain feeling, but that does not mean it's not worship. Worship is when you realize that the God of the universe loves you. And there's nothing we have done to deserve that, but he has chosen to nonetheless, and he has given his son for that. And I'm thankful. Dear Father, thank you so much for the gift of your son that you have given each and every one of us. I thank you that my worship is not based on fickle things like my own emotions. It's based upon the rock-solid reality that you are God and that you will not be shaken, you will not be moved from where you are. And Lord, I am in desperate need of you. So during this moment right now, Lord, help each and every one of us to put ourselves back on that foundation of who you are and how much you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.
ask you to just continue praying with me here. Father, we just pray and ask for your spirit to speak this morning. As we look at your word, we are in desperate need of more of you. We don't need to hear my thoughts. We don't need to hear any other human's thoughts. What we need to hear is a word from you. And so by your Holy Spirit, the power that is yours, by your presence that you promised us in your word, where two or more gathered in your name, you're there. We ask, Lord, that you'd speak, that you would do us the great honor of opening our minds and hearts to hear something of relevance for our lives from you. Lord, we'll give you good credit for every good thing that happens as a byproduct of that. We thank you, thank you, thank you for your mercy, your sacrifice, your love. This is our prayer, and we lift it together in Jesus' name. Everybody agree with me and said, amen, amen. Good morning, Southwoods. Thrilled that you're here today, and I trust that uh, what's taken place has already been a blessing to your life, and I hope what takes place now will be too. I, uh, I love this time of year. It's a transitional season. We're kind of in the, the, the transition right now between fall. You know, we're kind of leaving summer, going into fall is kind of where we're headed into, and uh, it's always a beautiful time of year in my estimation. I love the temperatures as they cool, moderate. I love the, the, the leaves as they change colors. I love all of the things of fall. I love the, the decoration. I love everything really about fall except for the rea- realization that happens as time passes that winter is not far beyond. But, uh, but I love fall. And it's always been interesting to me that Jesus uses the metaphor of changing seasons In Scripture, as he talks about um, the days surrounding his return, he uses that metaphor to describe his return, his second coming. And today we're going to look at some of what Jesus had to say about his return, and particularly this whole idea uh, of the changing of the seasons. And I hope for the next few moments as we uh, continue the series that we've been in, uh, you know, how how to live with the end in mind, as we talk about that today, my hope is that you'll listen close, that you'll, if you'll do that, I think you'll walk away today with a better understanding of the times in which we live. I think you'll have a better understanding of how God would have us as his children to live. I think it'll help us to have better context of the times and anticipate uh, what's on the horizon. Uh, and I think even build confidence in us uh, because we'll know that there's somebody in the heavens that this is not news to. Stuff's going on. It's not, it's not new to him. It's like he's aware of it, and he told us ahead of time so that we could be prepared, so that we could uh, be equipped to uh, be his people during this time. Here's the metaphor that Jesus uses. It's recorded in Matthew 24, verses 32 and 33. And uh, if you want to go ahead and turn there, you can, because we'll be there in Matthew 24 today, mostly. But uh, we're going to start at verse 32 and 33, where Jesus says this to his disciples. Now, learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. You get the the seasonal metaphor here. He's talking about spring transitioning to summer is what he's talking about. But he goes on in verse 33 and says, In the same way, when you see all these things, you can know his return is very near right at the door. 
Jesus is speaking in these two verses here about a changing season that indicates that his return is imminent, that it's right at the door. I think that's intriguing to me. When you look at verse 33, where he says, you can know his return is very near, right at the door. It's like you get the, the idea of standing on the threshold, ready to you know, burst onto the scene, into the room. What are the signs though, that the season is near. Because he says in these verses, he said, when you see all these things, what are all these things that he's talking about? What are the signs that the season's changing? When we go from, from summer to fall, we, we understand colors change, temperatures drop. We understand these things. He's using a similar metaphor. What are the signs of season change indicating that we've gone from business as usual in the world to where he's standing at the door ready to burst through. Well, he lays all that out for us in Matthew 24. And let's go back to verse 1 of Matthew 24. And we'll start working our way through this and see what some of the signs of changing season are. And just before we start reading, let me just say this. If you're not real familiar with your Bible, I want you to know that Matthew 24 is one place where Jesus himself talks about this. Luke chapter 17 the latter part of the chapter, Jesus talks about this. Uh, Luke chapter 21, most of the chapter, Jesus really uh, deals very much with what he does here. Mark chapter 13, these are all places where Jesus, they're parallel passages of what we're looking at. And they call them parallel passages, Bible scholars, because they're, they're covering a lot of the same territory, but there are nuances of difference, slight change. He illustrates a little different. Some, Luke recorded a few illustrations that, that Matthew doesn't. Doesn't mean that one's contradicting the other. It just means that that's the one that Luke happened to come to his mind as he recorded it, and so he included those. And so the, the most complete way to grasp this is to do what scholars call a harmony, which is to, to sort of blend them and, com and, and compare them, but also to, to uh, blend them and to begin to understand what Jesus is saying, the full picture of what he's saying here. So I say all that as background. We're going to stay in Matthew 24 today. I can assure you, it'll be all that we can do to deal with it. You don't really need the others because they're, it's the amount of information, the communication that Jesus gives us here is staggering, truly, if you pause to reflect deeply on it. So let's, uh, let's work our way through, look at some of these signs of change, season change, uh, that he describes. Matthew 24 starts out, he says, As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds on this occasion, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. So here they are walking away from the temple, the Bible tells us. And verse 2 says, But he responded, You see all these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. And now, let me just pause. That, that got the disciples' attention because this is one of the great wonders of the ancient world was uh, Solomon's temple and uh, rebuilt by Herod in uh, ancient times. So this was, this, was, this was colossal, phenomenal architecture, structure, decor. I mean, gold everywhere. It was... People from all of the world traveled to see this thing. And so Jesus is here announcing to them that this is all going to be de demolished. Not even one stone is going to be left on top of another, he says. Verse 3, 
says later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, which is, if you've ever been there or never been there, it's like you go to the Temple Mount, there's a little valley, and then it climbs up on the other side, and there's a, a mountain on the opposite side, kind of a hillside, it's called the Mount of Olives, is where it is. And so literally, you can sit on the Mount of Olives, look back at the temple, which is exactly what they're doing. Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, verse 3 tells us, His disciples came to Him privately and said, Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? I mean, they could not conceive of anything. This, this is like cataclysmic, what he's describing. And this, this has to be a harbinger of the end of the world because they know Bible prophecy. They've already know the prophets. They've read Isaiah 24. They've read other passages in the Old Testament that talk about you know, the end of days. So they, they understand a lot more of this than we often do. They've read Ezekiel 37, 38, 39. They've read some of these places. And so they're saying, what, what, what sign will signal your return in the end of the world? And what I want you to notice, too, they've asked two questions, right? Two questions. When will all this happen, the destruction of the temple where they started? And what sign will signal the end of the world? They didn't realize, maybe, but they were asking two different and yet related things. And Jesus goes on to answer both questions with one response. Why would he do that? Because he's describing a pattern. He's highlighting for them, highlighting for us a pattern that the wise will take note of and understand that if they, if they analyze and compare the patterns of all of this, uh, there's insight and wisdom that can be gathered and, and gleaned. In fact, if we had time, we could walk you back through the destruction of Solomon's temple, the first, the first temple destroyed. And then here's Herod's temple when Jesus is standing here saying it's going to be destroyed. And he's saying that really they, they follow a common pattern that the wise will note. And then he goes on to start explaining a little more detail about all of this, but I described that as background for you guys. Verse 4, Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and threats of wars. But don't panic. Pause. He's just saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. With the wars and rumors of wars, I mean, if there are wars coming your way, are you going to be afraid? Probably, it's a natural human reaction, right? Jesus is saying, though, don't panic. The end is not yet. That's where he's going with this. Yes, these things, Jesus says, must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Verse 7, nation will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world, but all this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. And then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You'll be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere. And the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. 
The day is coming when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration, standing in the holy place. Reader, pay attention. I've always thought that's interesting that the scribe who actually recorded these words, which is Matthew, puts in parentheses, hey, wake up, wake up. Notice he's just, just trying to get everybody's attention about that. Reader, pay attention. Verse 16, then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on a deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return even to get a coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and for nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began. That's a pretty extreme statement. And it will never be so great again, Jesus adds. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. But it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. Then if anyone tells you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. See, I've warned you about this ahead of time. So if someone tells you, look, the messiah is out in the desert, don't bother to go and look. Or look, he's hiding here. Don't believe it. For as the lightning flashes in the east and shines to the west... So it will be when the Son of Man comes. Just as the gathering of vultures shows that there's a carcass nearby, so these signs indicate that the end is near. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, stars will fall from the sky, the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then at last the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with the mighty blast of a trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of earth and heaven. And then back to the verses we started with. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, you can know that his return is very near, right at the door. Did you notice the signs that the seasons are changing spiritually? Do you notice them as, as we read that? My guess is that we read this, most of us... Several, a, few, a few reactions that happen to those of us who are believers. First of all, you read it and, and there's this, that sense of like almost overwhelming dread because you just think, oh my gosh, that is just horrible. I, I can't. It's almost like there's a, the temptation to have fear and panic. And in fact, that wells up in some of us to such an extent that we justify ignoring these passages. And let me just say the days in which we live, it's very important that you not take that posture. Because what we don't know can hurt us. I mean, God tells us these things for a reason. He tells them not to fry our circuits, not to discourage us, not to cause us to dread and to panic and so forth. He tells us these things so that, 
so it will be prepared to endure, so it will be prepared to witness, so it will be prepared to to encourage people around us to, to help each other. And because if you know the whole story, you know that just because it speaks of the end here, that the end is near, what is the end? It's a new beginning is really what it is. It's a new beginning. It's just the end of things as we've known it. A new normal will come to be that will be far better than anything we can grasp or comprehend. In fact, if you look at the signs of season changing spiritually, the first sign that he uses is that he addresses, he talks about birth pains. He uses that metaphor as well. Why does he use that? Well, you know, I've never had a child. Don't plan on it. But I do know this. I remember this from when our children were little. I mean, birth pains, what did they do? They're sudden. You may know they're coming for months, but suddenly they're here. And when they're here, they take over, right? I mean, suddenly whatever agenda you had is now on the back burner because birth pains are now in control of your life. What else do we know about birth pains? If you understand the concept of birth pains, this is why God, I mean, God's brilliant. He picks this metaphor on purpose. What's the nature of birth pains? They start out, they, they get your attention, and then there's long periods between them, relatively long periods, let's say, right? What happens over time? They become more intense and their duration is longer, right? Are you with me? This is what happens. God picks the metaphor of birth pains on purpose because the signs that he describes in this passage will do what? They will become, over time, they will be sudden, they will get everyone's attention, and then they will ease up. And then they're going to get more intense. And over time, they will become longer. And they will ease up less because what's happening? It's close to birth. And the closer you get to birth, the less free time you get, shall we say, right? Jesus describes the birth pains in this passage. He picks that metaphor on purpose, and I would encourage you sometime for kicks, just search birth pains and go back in the Old Testament, read about this, because this is not brand new with Jesus. He's echoing the words of the prophets when he does this. It's been described that way for centuries. He starts laying out the birth pains in this passage. Deception will increase. He talks about divisions among nations and people groups will escalate. Look at verse 7. He says, nation will go to war against nation. I just want to pause right there, and I just want you to think about the word nation. We get the, this is the, the way it's translated. And you know, the original language in this case in the New Testament was Greek. And when it's translated, the Greek word for nation is ethnos. Ethnos, what does that sound like in English? Ethnic, right? Ethnos, ethnic. We get the, get the English word ethnic from ethnos. What, what's, what's the point of that? Jesus is not, in, in ancient times, I mean, nations tended to be uh, made up of common ethnic groups. I mean, this is the, the, they, were, they were ethnically related. 
And so consequently, there was sort of often war and collision between ethnic groups in ancient times. What are we now? I mean, I mean, we are literally scattered all over the world, mankind is. Every ethnic group is everywhere. And particularly in America, we are the proverbial melting pot. Uh, we've melted less, but we're still people groups within the nation. Um, I mean, they're all, we've got every nation represented in America. Now, here's why I say this. Jesus is describing how one of the signs, one of the indicators of the last days, of the end of days, is going to be that you'll have, think about this, ethnos rising against ethnos. Are you with me? Are you, are you tracking with me? It's people groups, not just nations. Because he goes on to describe kingdoms rising against kingdoms, which tends to be more what we think of as nations. What's my point in saying that? I'm just saying, you know, look around our culture. I mean, we could talk about George Floyd. We could talk about a lot of different things of this sort that's been going on in the last months. Part of the root is not police brutality or anything else. Part of the root is exactly what Jesus is describing. It's, it's ethnic groups, distinctions among peoples that are causing the friction. We should not be surprised by this fact. Doesn't mean that you have to bow down and accept it and just think it's all wonderful either. But it does mean that Jesus prophesied this kind of stuff was going to be present among us. Understand the times that we live in, every one of us. We've got to deal with the issues that are related to this, but understand the times. He goes on, if you look in the text, he talks about wars and threats of war, which, of course, we don't have any war in the world anymore right now, do we? Oh, that's right, Syria, Syria. Uh, there's the threats of war of Iran, and you look all around Israel. I mean, they've got their proxies completely surrounding the Middle East. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of threats of war with China, North Korea, Russia. Um, this is just normative. I mean, we could go to Iraq right now, and we don't think about it. We don't understand what's going on. But, I mean, we got stuff going on, armed conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan, all over the world right now that America is a part of. It's just... Uh, it's become normal, so normal we almost don't think of it. Think about that. That's how, how uh, jaded to some degree we've become as people, myself included. Jesus describes famines and earthquakes that will be occurring. In that same location, if we were to go to Luke 21 and uh, uh, verse 10, parallel passage, which I mentioned that earlier, uh, what you're going to find is Jesus speaks of plagues and pestilences that will be happening all over the world. It's just a modern, it's an ancient word idea for pandemics. Obviously, some of them have greater uh, virulence, you know, lethality than others, but it just, you get these pandemics just spreading all over the world. Jesus goes on and describes in the verses that follow how uh, he spoke, uh, one of the signs is going to be hatred and persecution of his followers. And it's interesting because he paints the picture that it will not just be like regional as in Israel, but he makes the case that it's going to be global. You will be hated all over the world, he says. 
Do you realize that right now there are more martyrs for the Christian faith, people giving their lives because they're loving people, because they're sacrificing for others, because they're just proclaiming that, that Jesus cares about other people. More martyrs right now in history than all of the past history combined. So you think, how can that be? I mean, if you just do the demographics, demographics of the earth, I mean, you know, there were, you could count in the millions of the population on the earth, and, and now we're dealing with 7 billion people on the planet. And so literally, it's a math thing is part of how this is happening. But there are more martyrs now than in all of world history combined. And if you question that, just go out and talk to the people, look at the people who deal with this day in and day out. Go to persecution.com, the voice of the martyrs ministry. Just go read and see. I mean, literally, this is affecting every country on the planet. Go to opendoorsusa.org. It's Open Doors International is a ministry. It's, the, the insights of what's going on are just staggering. I mean, honestly, it's more than you and I can absorb. It really is. But Jesus just paints this picture, picture that hatred and persecution of his followers is just going to spread. It's going to grow more rampant. And he describes, I think, in sequence, because he talks about that in verse 9, and then in verse 10, he starts talking about a great turning away. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence. He says, many will, will abandon him, turn away from him. Many will become offended by his teaching, his lifestyle. They'll betray and hate others. I, I think he describes these things because... There are many who claim to be his followers. The truth is they follow him because it's popular to follow him, not because they're truly to the core of their being in love with Jesus and have fully devoted themselves to him. And he's just saying, acknowledging reality, those folks probably drift off one of these days. And he goes on and says, you know, what fills the vacuum if he's not if if he is not the center of, of the uh, spiritual world for folks? What what takes his place? Well, it's, he goes on and describes the another sign, which is false prophets, deception increasing. He goes on to talk about another byproduct of him not being the center of people's lives, and that is that sin's going to increase. It's going to become rampant. Love is going to decrease because why love? The new motto in those days will be, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. Why? For tomorrow we die. This is how you live if you don't know Jesus and understand that there's more to life you know, than just right now. He goes on to describe in verse 15 and following that there will be crisis in the Middle East. You see, I mean, these are all signs, all indicators, just like leaves changing that would indicate that a season is changing in the fall. He's just saying there's going to be crisis in Israel. There's going to be crisis on the Temple Mount. Verse 15, he paints this picture of this sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. The holy place was a part of the temple. And so it was the, the most holy place was the the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God himself by his spirit resided. And uh, the priest could only, a high priest, mind you, could only enter once a year and it was uh, sacred. Um, but 
the holy place was just outside of that, just on the other side of the veil. And he just paints this picture that there's going to be this desecration, a sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Let me give you a few examples of this in history. It, it, in 167 B.C., Antiochus IV or Antiochus IV, depending on how you say his name, and there's probably a dozen other ways to say it, I don't know. But he, he conquered Jerusalem in 167 B.C., he erected a statue of Zeus in the temple, the holy place. He erected it and massacred the people. He sacrificed a pig on the altar at the time because, of course, that was desecration of the place. And this, this is one scene of this, and that happened before Jesus showed up on the scene. That was 167 B.C., so this has been a cycle, a pattern of this kind of thing going on. Then you see in 70 AD, the emperor Titus, he desecrated and destroyed the temple as well. Massacred a million Jews. I was reading about it again in preparation this, this past week, and it was interesting. You had the Roman armies outside of Jerusalem, and what did they do? They allowed the people, the pilgrims, to come on into the city because it was sort of feast time, and... Um, but then once they got in, they trapped them. That's what they did. They did this in 70 AD. They did it later in, in 130s uh, AD. I mean, it's just like there's a pattern of this kind of stuff. And Jesus is just saying the pattern of this is going to continue. Like birth pains, with, it's, like, it's like a metaphor, an illustration within an illustration of how this stuff is just going to escalate over time. Today, if you were to go to the Temple Mount, you're going to find the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Dome of the Rock. And, of course, there's total peace there, right? No, I mean, it's, there's unrest. You step on the Temple Mount. I've been there three times. You step up there. In, in peace, you feel uh, in, I mean, involuntarily in your spirit, you, you feel the tension, the friction, the just below the surface, you know, that this is a, a holy and sacred place and you're standing in the epicenter of all things prophetic. You just, you just know that. It's, it's surreal. And Jesus is just saying there's going to be crisis in Israel and he gives, paints this picture and he says about it, verse 21, there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it will never be so great again. I mean, that's going to be the nature of the crisis that takes place there. And it has global implications because he says, in fact, unless that time, verse 22, of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive, but it will be shortened for the sake of his chosen ones. I won't go into it uh, other than to acknowledge this fact that the, the metaphor that Jesus is describing here sort of assumes that there will be a temple there at the very end of days when this is fully, full, uh, fully fulfilled. And there's a lot of debate, a lot of wrestling with that. But if, we had, uh, if, if you were with me and Lori on one of our tours, we would take you to Israel, we'd take you to the Temple Institute. What do you find at the Temple Institute? You find a place where literally ever since uh, Israel stepped back into the land, they have been in the process of reconstructing every element of the temple in order to have worship there one of these days. They fully expect that there will be another, a third temple built on the Temple Mount someday. Uh, 
And in fact, if you read about it, they think that it can be built unbelievably quickly, just unbelievably quickly in our time. It's interesting if you read the, the signs of the seasons changing. Uh, Jesus goes on and says, you know, really in the time of all that crisis, there's going to be false messiahs and they're already multiplying in Israel. And he, then he picks another metaphor, which we started with, and really it's sort of two metaphors. It's the changing seasons, but he, it's the fig tree. Look at verse 32 and 33 one more time. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, you can know that his return is very near right at the door. The fig tree is a metaphor also used throughout Scripture by the prophets to describe Israel as a nation. And he's just painting the picture. He's just saying, you know, if you, if you look there and you see the fig tree, when its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, which paints this picture of like it's, it's not just a, a brand new planted thing, but it's actually growing and starting to, to flourish, starting to, to flourish. Implication that as that's all happening, a lot of this is going to come to pass. If you think about the history of Israel as a nation, I mean, it's, it was a nation that was completely wiped off the planet, of course, right? And in 1948, it became a nation again. Do your world history, how often has that happened? Zero. Zero times. Nations are wiped out, and they're never reconstituted, never reestablished, unless God's involved. 1967, Jerusalem, the city, Israel regained control of the city. In 2020, what happened? Actually, 2020, or I, I got ahead of myself. 2017, what happened? Jerusalem was named the capital of Israel officially. It had been functioning as that for a long time. It was officially named that. In 2020, what happened? The Abraham Accords have begun. What is that, you say? If you know biblical prophecy, you know that part of the prophetic plan of things is going to be there will be this treaty that will that the nations will subscribe to and they'll make promises and Israel will put its trust in the nations and not in its God. This is part of where this all goes. We're in the very early stages of that, but it's happening. Pay attention to it. I mean, these are all signs of the season changing and here's what's significant about it. Jesus says this, when you start seeing all these things, you can know that the time is at hand. Throughout the course of history, there have been lots and lots of nations trying to figure out where they are. Every people group, every, every person throughout history, where am I on the timeline of things? Uh, part of the clue for our generation is, is that every one of the kinds of things that Jesus describes are happening in our time. Ping, 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 ping. They're all present. They've all been present. We've, we've been this part of our generation. So what do we do with that? Jesus gives us at least four instructions for the faithful. He challenges us to live counterculturally. 
It's the first thing it really shows up in the text. Live counterculturally, abandon sin, embrace holiness. He's just saying while the rest of the world, the, you know, sin is rampant in the culture, what's he saying? Among my people, he would say, abandon sin, embrace holiness. You've got to live counterculturally, you and I do. We must. Because if we don't, we will get swept up in the lies and deceit, the deceptions that are going on around us. We must embrace holiness. We must choose to love whether or not others reciprocate. In verse 12, he just kind of paints a picture how the love of many will grow cold. What is, Jesus says, how will, the, how will the world know that you and I are his disciples? By our love. That's what the, the biblical text teaches. On some level, the, the love of many will grow cold because they're going to be fewer and fewer of us, is what he's saying indirectly there. So we must give ourselves to being men and women, young people who love like Jesus loved, whether or not it's reciprocated. This is the deal. I mean, some of us, it's been convenient to love even when somebody loves us back, right? Jesus is saying we must love whether or not it's reciprocated. Second instruction for the faithful that shows up in the text, either stated or implied, is that we need to beware of deception. Verse 4, he just, his opening salvo into this subject and responding to it is, don't let anyone mislead you. Why would he begin there? Because there's going to be lies and deception, agendas, all of this, and the goal is going to be to mislead people for personal gain. And he's just saying, don't let anyone mislead you. Beware of deception. Beware of it on a spiritual level because he talks about people who come as prophets and messiahs and all this stuff. But it just, if there's wars and threats of wars and all kinds of stuff, it's not going to be just spiritual. It's not going to be just something like that. We got to be wise, discerning, beware of deception. Verse 13, he says, talks about enduring. He says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. He's just trying to say that this, the thought that we will, we will follow God and it be effortless, that it's popular, that it'll be economically to our advantage somehow. We have to lay all of that aside. We have to endure be willing to endure just as he did, just as believers have done throughout the centuries. It's a different way of thinking. It's kind of the, the defensive posture of things, of be wearing of deception, be wear, you know, recognizing that, that this, is, this is like SEAL training. And you're, think of it this way, it's hell week for SEAL training, right? It's probably a better metaphor than we think of. But that's really what we're talking about here. Endure to the end. And then he goes on in verse 14 to paint this picture. The great irony is, as many are turning away, at that very time, verse 14 tells us that the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all the nations will hear it. And then the end, which is really the beginning, because it's his return, will come. Jesus just wants us to understand that Instruction for the faithful is we're to witness. Locally, globally, we have a role to play in that. 
need to listen to his Holy Spirit and speak as he leads us to do so with people. And in doing so, God will be honored by that and you'll be blessed in that. And in fact, the gospel will go around the world. You know, when winter's coming, how important is it to recognize and prepare for the changing of seasons? Well, it depends. If you want your pipes to freeze, you know, well, then you can ignore the fact that you left the garden hose hooked up to your outdoor spigot, right? You can do that if you want your pipes to freeze and burst, right? But if you and I are wise and we're thinking, oh, let's prepare ahead of time, we, we prepare, we bring plants from the outside inside that we value because we know that some of them can't survive the cold weather. You know, we make sure that, you know, in, that windows are insulated, that, that any damage on the house, that that's taken care of. We make sure that our car will be able to start in cold weather. We just take, we take precautions. You just, you don't, we don't live in fear of winter, do we? No, you just take precautions is what you do. It's very important. In a similar but yet greater way, it's very, very important for you and me to recognize and prepare for the changing spiritual season that's upon us. There are preparations that we need to make, some that are common sense that we've talked about, some that maybe the Holy Spirit has spoken to you individually about. And instead of like debating in your head concern about somebody thinking you're looking weird or something, Maybe it's time that you just say and surrender and say, God, lead me. Are there things you want me individually to do? I know what you're saying here, but are there additional things that you want me to do? Wisdom seeks God for counsel on that. Maybe there are changes that he wants you to make to your priorities or your schedule or how you use your finances or maybe your routine or something. Maybe maybe some relational dynamics of things that you need to address during this time. Maybe you need to get in a life group because you've been, it's been okay for you to be independent for a period of time here, kind of on your, on your own. It's like you're your own life group and you come to church and that's great. But the truth is you need a closer, more intimate relationship even if you think you'll be okay. Here's why that's important. Because right now you may be fine. But if some of this stuff starts happening in greater degree, guess what? When the birth pains hit, you don't have time to paint the baby's room, right? Nor do you feel like it. When birth pains happen, they take over. It's imperative that we take advantage of this window of time to take some of these steps. Maybe some of us today need to repent of our sins. We need to surrender our lives to Jesus in baptism as the Bible teaches and quit procrastinating that. Maybe the Holy Spirit's prompting us in some other way. We can help you follow through on those kind of things. If you're listening to us online, you can reach out to us through pastors at southwoods.org. You can email us there. If you're on site, you can grab one of us at the end of the service. But here's the thing. We've got to take seriously what Jesus says. Almost 2,000 years have passed from the time when Jesus spoke these words. It's important that we listen and take seriously because all of the things that he's describing there are happening. His return may not be tomorrow, 
But he's at the door. He's standing at the door. And it's, he's knocking, he's inviting us to let him into our lives now before he bursts through the door, which is about what's to happen. I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me. I recognize that some of this kind of stuff, some of you think, Greg, that's kind of intense. You're kind of serious about this. And I would say, yes, I am serious about this. Um, If you're wondering if you missed last week, go watch last week's message because it, you know, I lay out the biblical importance of this. If the church, if we're going to be the church in the days ahead, we must take this seriously. It, we must move it up the priority list of our lives for our benefit, for our kids, for our nation's benefit. We've all got to do that. Keep in the back of your mind that it's not just the end. I mean, this is not the end. This is a new beginning is where it all heads. We just have to hang on, sort of like I've ridden some roller coaster rides. I remember the first time I rode Mamba at Worlds of Fun. You know, you come up here, and that first dip, man, it's, it just takes your breath. And you just think, what was I thinking being on this? And then it's kind of like it, it becomes the ride of one's life if once you get past the anxiety that comes with that very opening. And I can assure you, living in the times that we live, we will see God do things that we've read about, that others have seen, but we will see. We will see because he's with us. He's with us. You'll watch it in your own personal life. We'll watch it as a church, as God's people. So I look forward to that. I don't look forward to all of it. I look forward to better days ahead. Let's bow our heads and pray, and then uh, we'll be dismissed. And I hope you'll reflect and just wrestle through these passages and these things. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have promised that you never leave us, you never forsake us. Thank you that this is not the end, that this is just the pathway to a new beginning. Just as birth is the pathway for a baby into a bright new world that that child could never have comprehended. In the process, the baby probably doesn't like every moment of it. But when it's all said and done, you look back and go, that was worth it. And everybody celebrates. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to just keep all of this in mind. Give us courage. Help us to seek you. We do need you. Lord, we need you. Every hour we'll need you. Would you guide our steps? Would you help us to look out for each other? Would you help us to do our part that the world might know that you love and you care? And God, will rejoice to be your children. We'll rejoice at the eternity that we will have with you, saved by your grace, and that we will inherit as your children. Would you go with us now as we leave this place? May the words of Scripture echo in our minds. And would you prod us forward toward holiness and righteousness and toward you? Go with us now as we lift this prayer. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.